So the title of today's message is Salvation 101. We're going to be continuing our Gospel of John series, and we're going to be in John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, going to verse 21, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And today we're going to be covering one of the most well-known and famous and most used scriptures in all of the Bible. This is the scripture that people will hold up at football games, and it appears on most gospel tracts, and is considered one of the most central verses in all of scripture. And I would say that me and most conservative pastors and theologians view the entirety of the Bible through the lens of particularly John 3, 16 through 18. These verses put the entirety of biblical history into context and in completely describing the salvation mission of God and his love for all humanity. Now let me make one key point about the scriptures we're going to be reading today. This is Jesus continuing a conversation that started at the beginning of this chapter. And that's very important of how we understand these verses because they have to be understood within this context. And if you're not here last week, if you're not able to come and, and hear the message, I encourage you to listen to the podcast so you have the whole picture at, after the end of today. But for now, let me set the stage with just a brief summary of what we covered last week. In the beginning of John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to one of the biggest re religious leaders in Israel at that time. In our modern context, he's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have been like a bishop or a cardinal of, of his religion at that time. One of the big guys, most educated, PhD, level theologian, and um, a guy with just this huge educational background and huge influence with his religion. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that everything he knows, all of his education, everything he know, thinks he knows about his religion and his, about Scripture is wrong, particularly about Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees and the rest of the Jews trusting in the wrong things to make themselves pleasing to God. Jesus emphasizes the point that Nicodemus, as well as all of humanity, are dead men walking and they need a new birth. They need to be born again to be born again of the Spirit that will regenerate their earthly outlook into a heavenly outlook, and not one of the flesh that will be focused on one of this earth, or be focused on this earth. So that's the backdrop of what Jesus is talking about to Nicodemus. Last week we read that Jesus tells him, you must be born again. This, re this week we're going to continue Jesus' explanation as to the why and the how a person is to be saved. And this following message must be taken as the explanation of the fact that you must be born again to escape the curse of the fall of man that was left on humanity in Genesis chapter 3. So that's why Genesis chapter 3 and John 3, I said last week, are bookends of the salvation story. And the why is what we're going to focus on this morning as Jesus peels back that mystery of salvation, breaking it down to its most basic principles so that we can understand the heart and mind of our Father God. And that's why I titled the message this week, Salvation 101. This is the basics of what the Christian faith is all about. So let's read in John chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. 
I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the stake or snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So it may be seen plainly that what they have done in the sight of God. And Father God, we thank you, Lord. I thank you, Father, that we have gotten to the central verse of the Bible. And I ask, Father, that you just help clarify these basic truths of Christianity within all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our spirits. These are the words that we are to live by. These are the words that we are to wrap our entire life around. To see those who do not know Jesus come to saving faith. Lord God, I ask that you plant that seed within each one of our lives. And for those whose seeds have already been planted, put water on it and allow it to sprout and produce even more of a harvest for you, Lord. Father God, I ask that you do incredible things this morning in our heart. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned a few moments ago that we have to look at the framework of these verses according to the way Jesus meant them to be understood. Because we have a tendency as modern believers to cling hard to single verses of Scripture or small chunks of Scripture without understanding it in its broader context and application to us, and sometimes even tragically how it fits with God's entire revelation of himself and his plan of salvation for all people. So we're going to break it down this morning. I encourage you to take notes. I, I put small note things on the, back, on the back of the bulletin this morning so you can follow it. But I want to make one quick note before we begin. We're going to approach this scripture in a way that might seem back, a little bit backwards. We're going from the end of the scripture back to the, the beginning of the scripture that we read this morning. And so I'm going to do just a quick teaching moment on how to read, interpret, and understand your Bible. Most of the Bible and most of the scripture found in the Bible is speaking from what is known as an Eastern mindset and it's using Eastern languages. And they are very different from what, the way that we think here in the Western world. You and I are part of the Western world. We are part of the Western culture, the Western languages, the Western mindset. Eastern mindset presents ideas and information and solve problems differently than Western people. This matters in how we approach the Bible. Because in the West, we are very linear in our thinking. And when I say that, linear just means that we make logical 
concise arguments for things. But in the East, they are very abstract in the way that they approach things. They kind of put out, they kind of make a truth statement and then put out all kinds of different things and make that co coalesce together and, and create an idea that way. Those in the Eastern cultures and languages, that covers most of the Bible. They create that kind of mental picture and use that mental picture to form that idea and, and decide on truth and solutions that way. And that's why one of the biggest challenges of interpreting the Bible is, is bringing those two mindsets together. Because we have a tendency to look at it from a Western point of view, and, it, and we can get it messed up for some reason. And sometimes that's a challenge of studying the Bible and, and creating sermons, is making an Eastern thought make sense in Western minds. And I say all that in the beginning to, to explain why we're starting at the end of the Scripture and going backward today to identify the problem that Jesus is addressing. And the problem that we see is that people are dead in their sins. This is what Jesus is saying, that people are dead in their sins. And we covered a little bit of that last week, but Jesus really nails it down this week with telling us the reason that people are dead in their sin. And this is one of the biggest things that the world has problem with, with Christianity. In verse 19, Jesus said, this is the verdict. Now that word verdict means the truth of the matter. When we go to court, when a person is accused of a crime, and they go to court and they sit in front of the jury, and the jury gets all the facts, all the evidence, all the testimony that came through that trial, and they go into a room, and they, they discuss it, and they go through it, and eventually they come up with this word called verdict. Verdict just literally means the truth of the matter. So Jesus is saying when everything is done, when we consider all of the of the truth when it comes to humanity, the truth of the matter is this, that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light. That's the truth. And why is that truth? What makes people love darkness instead of light? The reason, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And in my experience with talking about people who do not know Jesus, who have not come to that, that saving knowledge of God through making Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, this is the biggest obstacle to get them to believe because they don't think they need to be saved. For example, how many funerals have you gone to where somebody stands up and points at the coffin and says, that person down there was a dirty, no good piece of dirt. I mean, how many times have you gone to a funeral and heard the pastor say that? How many obituaries have you, set, have, have you read that says how the local area is blessed and celebrating that this person has finally died and left the community in peace? We don't want to admit that, that some people do bad things, that some people are just inherently evil in their actions. There's a story of a man whose twin brother died robbing a gas station. This brother, big guy, him and his brother just huge, hulking, menacing kind of men. And his twin brother that didn't die was, was every bit the scoundrel that his brother was. And he went to the local pastor and he told him, Preacher, you better say something nice about my brother at his funeral. He said, as a matter of fact, I want you to call him a saint from that pulpit. 
He goes, you don't call him that saying, I'll destroy you and I'll destroy your family and I'll burn your church to the ground. And this is the kind of man that would do all three of those things. So understandably, the pastor is a little bit intimidated here. He's kind of thinking, man, this guy will literally kill me, my family, my dog, and burn my church down. I mean, I'm, I'm, he was a little bit nervous about that. So the pastor got up at the funeral, and the guy's sitting right there in the front row just scowling at him, just saying, you better do it, you better do it. And so the pastor started off by looking at him and said, you know what, everyone in town knows the man that we're here to remember today. He's well known in our community. He said, in fact, I would call that man down there a saint, especially if you compare him to his brother right there in the front row. But doesn't that ring true in life? When you tell a person how much they need a Savior, they immediately pull out, but I'm a good person card. How many people have heard that when you try to say, well, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't done it, you know, this or that or, or something else. A few years ago, um, we went through a ministry at a, a few of the churches that we've served at called The Way of the Master. And they use the Ten Commandments and go out on the street to show people their sin before God. And you can actually still um, Google this or YouTube these videos online if you want to watch them. They go out and they ask them a series of questions after they say, you know, we, we're doing a survey and can we just, um, how people uh, look at themselves and, and see if you're a good person, would you mind just answering a couple questions? And, and so they start asking them questions. It's based on the Ten Commandments. So the first one they said, have you ever told a lie? Ever, in your life, even a small one. Even if you were sick one day and somebody said, how are you doing? You said, oh, I'm good, I'm fine. But you weren't. He goes, technically, that's a lie. Have you ever lied, even a small one? And most people would say, well, everybody lies. Everybody tells you know, little white lies. It's just a little white lie. We call it a white lie because white is good and black is bad, so we call it a white lie, right? <laughs> Have you ever stolen anything in your life? Even if it was just a paper clip from work without asking for it. Have you ever looked at another person who is not your spouse with lustful intent? This is when people really start to squirm. Have you ever hated another human being? Have you ever used God or Jesus' name as a curse word? If you've done any of these things, even by accident, you are guilty. If we're honest with each other, especially with Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments as seen in the Beatitudes, that it's also a heart issue with us, even we as believers break God's laws all the time. All violations of God's law carry the same penalty, eternity in hell. One violation is all you need, and then you are doomed, and you are damned to an eternity of suffering. And these people in these, in these videos, they're real people. You know, these are real people. They weren't actors. They walked up on. They would be stunned when they realized that how much trouble they were in before God. When they were presented the biblical truth of the matter, they were just floored that that's what the Bible actually said. But when they thought about it for a second, that's when the excuses and the justifications would have started. And when it comes to spiritual things, excuses, justifications... They come from one source, and that's pride. We all put ourselves out there as somebody we're really not because we don't want people to see who we really are. And when you expose that person's true nature to themselves and you crumble that facade that they spent years putting up, 
They get really angry about that. And that is why people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and they will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Jesus is telling us the exact reason people hate it when you come to them with the gospel. Spiritually speaking, just imagine you're getting the best night's sleep ever. You're tired, you haven't gotten sleep in a long time, and then you get a chance to sleep in, and you're sitting there sleeping, you're just comfortable, you're having good dreams, and then somebody comes in with a garbage can, starts banging it, shines a light in your, in your face, and screams, get up, get up, get up, wake up! That's what you're doing spiritually to people when you confront them with the gospel truth. And that's why they hate us. That's why they hate the message. That's why the gospel message is ridiculed in popular society. And it's one of the curses of being human. We are much more comfortable with the easy lie than the hard truth. Isn't that true? We're much more comfortable with the easy lie than the hard truth. And the hard truth is this we are sinners, we were born sinners. We're broken. We're fallen creatures, unable to do anything to pay off the fine or punishment for our sins. We cannot save ourselves, and the people outside this building today cannot save themselves. And that is why salvation is God-centered. It's not man-centered. It's all about God. God had to do all the heavy lifting. God had to do all of the work. Because there's nothing that you and I can do to cleanse ourselves of that fallen nature that would continually pull us back to that life of rebellion and sin. And that leads us to the premise of what Jesus is talking about. For God so loved the world. Just drink in, these, in that scripture one more time this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's what the world would want you to believe. He did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loves you. People ask, how much does God love us? I said, this much. And they nailed him to the cross just like that. Amen. That's how much he loves you. He who was without sin became sin for you so that you may have the righteousness that God requires for you to enter heaven someday. Jesus did it all. It's all to him I owe. Sin had left that crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. It was all about God. And God, yes, he is indeed a God of love. And that love is most perfectly seen in the Son that died for us. And what the world gets wrong, and what they don't understand is what love really means of how God defines it himself. And to a fallen, sin-centered, sin-loving world, love is a get-out-of-jail-free card. They said, God should just forgive us. But that's not what love is as defined by God in Scripture. One of the most well-known chapters that's just been relegated to weddings is found that tells us what love is is found in 1 
Corinthians chapter 13 where it says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, love always hopes, and love always perseveres. And Jesus said that the verdict, the truth of the matter, is that people love darkness instead of the light. And when you hold that truth and a definition of what love is in the Bible, we see that in order for God to truly be a God of love, then he must also shun evil. The reason is, is that evil is not a force in of itself. We always say that evil is spreading. That's not technically true. Evil is simply the lack of God in any given situation since God is good. God cannot bless something he is not part of. And that's why love can never exist apart from justice. In order for God to be loving, as defined in the scripture that we just read, he must also punish those who do not show love to others. Otherwise, God doesn't love everyone if he allows some to do evil to others free from consequence. And we already saw that the Bible says that God so loved the world. You can't have it both ways. And when someone who is obviously an unbeliever tells me that God loves them too much to send them to hell, my reply is God loves the rest of us too much to let you in to heaven. He loves you too much. He loves me too much not to send you to hell. That's why evangelism probably isn't my gifting. Imparting truth is my gifting, even when it's harsh sometimes. But I'm not being harsh for the sake of being a jerk. I'm not being harsh for the sake of of trying to look good. I am just trying to be scriptural. That is what the Bible says. God did it all for us. All we have to do is believe it and accept the free gift that he is offering to us. If God had made salvation contingent on some work we had to do, I think most of humanity would be in heaven. If, If God had said... Like, like during the time of Martin Luther, there was a belief out there that said, in order to enter heaven, you have to come to the Vatican at some point in your life, climb the stairs to St. Peter's Cathedral on your knees. There's a lot of stairs, marble stairs, so your knees would be pretty wrecked at the end of this. You climb it on your knees and kiss the statue at the top and you'll be saved. I think if we actually had that as condition to be saved, most of humanity would do it. What they won't do is be honest with themselves. What they won't do is look inside themselves and say, yeah, what's in there is is actually pretty bad. When you ask a person to be honest with themselves, to examine the deep source of their motives and the deepest source of their actions, and then admit that they are a sinner, that's when the anger and the resentment and occasionally even violence comes out. A friend of mine named Gaylord and I used to go down to the lakefront in Kenosha and witness and hand out tracts. And once he approached a woman in her 20s and he handed her a tract that said on it, Jesus loves you, and he said the same thing. He's, Jesus loves you. He's kind of crazy. He's like, Jesus loves you, man. 
And and that and all of a sudden her boyfriend ran. I know Gaylord is awesome, but her boyfriend ran up and got in between his wife and Gaylord and just started screaming at him. I mean, he shoved him backwards. He's like, I'm gonna bleepity bleep kill you if you come anywhere near my wife with all that garbage. And just screaming and just ready to to do real violence against him. And and Gaylord, as I said, he was he was kind of a little crazy. <laughs> He, he said, yo, man, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. <laughs> well, you see, you quote that kind of scripture to a guy who's already angry. He like cocked back. He's ready to just lay Gaylord out and I had to get in between them and just say, oh, yo, yeah, okay, we're, we're leaving, man. But it just shows the people, re, the reaction that people have to that gospel. Because that good news suddenly shone into the evil of people's hearts. It was like taking that garbage can and, and banging it and shining the, the light into the eyes of a person who's deep asleep. We don't like being reminded of who we really are. And the result of that is this, and we see it in the scripture we're studying this morning, that who believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. But that leads to solution. And the scripture that Jesus refers to here sounds like a really strange way to explain it. But remember that Jesus, this is a conversation he's having with a Jewish scholar. It makes perfect sense for him to use this exact scripture. He's painting a mental picture for Nicodemus using a common frame of reference that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And what Jesus is referring to is a story from Numbers 21, an incident where the people of God expressed unbelief and were complaining in the desert as they wandered. And in Numbers 21, verse 4, it says that they traveled from Mount Hor along the route of, to the Red Sea to go to Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And when anyone who was bitten by the snake looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now the key to understanding why Jesus referred to this story, it seems like a weird way for God to do something, doesn't it? I mean, why, why would you have people look at the very thing that is plaguing them? And the key to understanding why Jesus referred to this story is verse 8, that God told people to look upon a serpent on a pole to be healed of their consequences of their rebellion against God and Moses. In other words, the people had to look and most importantly, the people had to believe what God said was true. That's the definition of saving faith. Whoever believes in Jesus will have everlasting life. That's what this whole 
book is about. Unbelief in God's word is what got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden in the first place. When you break down all the evil in the world down to its root cause, it all comes back to Genesis chapter 3 when the devil told Eve, did God really say? He cast dispersion on God and his word. And that is why belief in God's word is the requirement for salvation. Because lack of belief caused the fall of man in the first place. God is simply restoring what was broken in Genesis chapter 3. And that's why faith is a necessary action and, and belief for salvation. Faith is that practical exercise for believing that God's word is true. And if you're trusting in anything other than the saving work of Jesus Christ, that's a damnable sin. If you're trusting in being a good person who wins God's favor, you're doomed. If you're hoping that somehow your, your good outweighs your bad and that the karmatic scales tilt just enough up to the good side so God can love you, that's spitting in the face of what Jesus did for you. Because salvation must be done according to God's plan. And God's plan is further described in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that it is by grace you have been saved. By grace, through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. It's all on God's shoulders, not on your effort. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. In other words, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, and you can't do something to make it yours. Other than to believe Jesus when he said, or it is finished. So I would ask you this morning, do you believe? 